0: is Camilla and you're listening to The Cat's Whisker, a time machine for all those who love rock and roll and want to know everything about it. People, stories and the music that changed the world. In a few words, it doesn't matter whether you've lived through those years or just like me, you've always wondered what it was like. I have loads of stories to tell and great music to play. So let's roll welcome back to the cat's whisker this is camilla and yes it's been a few weeks and a few mad weeks for me but one thing hasn't changed which is my love for rock and roll and today i'll bring you a brand new episode about a very interesting topic As you know, The Cat's Whisker is a rock and roll podcast, and when I've talked about the history of rock and roll in the past, or what was the first rock and roll song, my journey always started in the US. Rock and roll has now become a term with a wider definition than it used to have. When it was popularized, it was simply a new music genre that, in its purest form, was around from the mid to the late 50s. But the truth is, rock and roll as a term is still so popular because ever since that new music was introduced, it didn't take long before it became a full lifestyle. I know you know all these things. I always talk about how rock and roll changed everyone's lives, or I want to believe so. But believe it or not, even the UK had something to say on the matter. Historically, the music that changed the world after American rock and roll is clearly the wave of beat music brought by the British Invasion, but today I want to talk about No Man's Land, the short and yet vivid phenomenon of British rock and roll. When rock and roll exploded in America, the UK market had to find a British answer to it. Films like Blackboard Jungle or Rock Around the Clock and all Elvis' films were resounding successes. And even if the BBC wasn't really keen on rock and roll, this new music was now in high demand all across the country. And to capitalize on this new phenomenon, the music industry chose the easy way first. Tons of session musicians replicated note by note Little Richard, Chuck Berry and many other songs that were selling 100,000 records. But you see, what I love about rock and roll and well, what people loved about rock and roll and that's the reason why it emerged in the first place and became a music that we still love to this day is the enthusiasm, the feel. It's hard to explain but as lawyer Potter Stewart said in 1964 about pornography, I should not attempt to define it, and perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so. But I know it when I see it. Oh well, in the case of rock and roll, I know it when I hear it. And probably people in the 50s thought so too. Rock and roll music played by probably middle-aged board session musicians just wasn't rock and roll. Another type of music, though, became very, very popular around the same period in the UK and served as a bridge between rock and roll and the later music of the British invasion. I'm talking about skiffle. Believe it or not, this genre was quite mysterious before becoming famous as one of the precursors of the best era in British music. Skiffle was born at the beginning of the 1900s in Louisville, Kentucky and was revitalized multiple times. The first time was during the 20s and 30s in Memphis, Tennessee, the city that would then give us Rocket 88 and the Sun Studio. Skiffle would then migrate towards Chicago in the north Its origins are quite obscure. It probably developed from New Orleans jazz bands and jug bands. And the term skiffle is often associated with rent parties where tenants would hire musicians to entertain the neighborhood and pass a hat around to collect money and pay their rent with. What I love the most about skiffle though is definitely the instruments it employed. Unique, to say the least. Since it originated, just like jug bands in an era and communities where people were struggling financially, these bright artists started making music out of anything they could find. And in many cases, one continent brought us these creative rudimental instruments, Africa. The beaten skiffle, for example, was dictated by the washboard, originally from West Africa. When common instruments such as guitars or banjos weren't available, what most musicians used to do was turning to day-to-day objects and see if they could produce music. Sure enough, attaching a cigar box to a broomstick brought us the cigar box guitar, which in various forms is still used today. Jugs, comb and paper and saws were between many commonly used objects that became musical instruments. My favourite though is the wash tub bass or, when it was brought over to the UK, tea chest bass. The idea probably comes from Congo and when it was played in jug bands or original skiffle bands it was made out of an empty bucket turned upside down. In the central part of the bucket a long string was attached and the top part of the string was tied to a staff or more often than not a broomstick that when kept on the edge of the bucket would function as a guitar neck and kept the string in tension. When skiffle was revived in the UK instead of a bucket people started using a tea chest which is basically a box used to transport tea on ships. How British of them! The bucket or the tea chest worked as a resonator and the player had the hard task to find the right tuning from playing the only string. With the war and the growing influence of the United States on European countries, swing and trad jazz became the UK's favorite music. And if there weren't language barriers between America and Britain, there is something to say about exporting music in different countries. Art, just like languages, is a mirror into the society, the people that create it. It still is and always will be. Now, that's also the reason why importing American rock and roll and making an exact copy of it didn't quite work for the British music industry. Although both Britain and the United States came out quite well from World War II, the two countries couldn't have been more different in that specific historical period. In the early 50s, the UK was definitely licking its wounds and trying to rebuild a country devastated by bombings and a complete reconversion of the manufacturing industry. At that same time, though, the United States were thriving. And that's what rock and roll was all about. Don't get me wrong, the UK were about to experience some of their best years, just not yet. And that's why they felt the need to create their own music, or well, to borrow the idea and make it their own. The British revival of skiffle and the skiffle craze of 1955, when young people all over the country decided to create their own bands and play makeshift instruments, was exactly what Britain needed to get to rock and roll first and conquer the world with its original music later. And it all started with one song, Rock Island Line by Lonnie Donegan. Millions listened to that song and bought it. Skiffle was simply perfect for all those who couldn't afford to buy a new instrument. And that's why for the first time many of the musicians that started their career in that period and peaked in the 60s came from the working class. And the new fashion started spreading across the country as well. Originated as a subculture, ever since this new music started spinning on the record players, rock and rollers revitalized the Edwardian Dandies fashion, now renamed Teddy Boy style, to differentiate themselves from the masses. It is calculated that in the late 50s between 30 to 50,000 skiffle groups were born and guitar sales skyrocketed. Between those groups there were the members of the greatest bands of all time, to name one, a skiffle group named the Quarrymen will, in fact, in a few years become the Beatles. And in London, two Soho coffee bars in particular saw the development of skiffle music into the first wave of British rock and roll The Two Eyes and, hear this, The Cat's Whisker. Many of those performers will then become part of the cast of the UK's first ever rock and roll programme. The 6'5 special, launched by the BBC in 1957. Lonnie Donegan, Petula Clark, John Regan became regulars, and some artists actually became household names of the 6'5 special and other similar programmes like Oh Boy and Boy Meets Girls. Stars of all these programmes would be the Dallas Boys, which are also considered Britain's first boy band, Wee Willie Harris, Marty Wilde, Tony Sheridan, Vince Taylor. Helen Shapiro, Cuddly Dudley, the first British black rock and roller, and Tommy Steele, who in 1956 released one of Britain's first rock and roll hits, Rock with the Caveman. And that's how the first era of the British rock and roll teen idols started. And then when the program Oh Boy began in 1958, the bill became bigger and bigger. One day, a boy named Ian Samwell was riding on the 715 London bus. On his way to Chestnut to rehearse with his band. While on the bus, he wrote a song and handed it to one of his bandmates a few minutes later. The song was called Move It and the bandmate was Cliff Richard. Not long after, Richard and the song were featured on Old Boy and he became one of the biggest singers in British music history. The song topped the charts in 1958 as him and his backing band, The Drifters, who then became the shadows to avoid any legal conflict with the American band of the same name, was something new and interesting on the music landscape. Even if Cliff Richard was actually marketed as the new Elvis, another act that emerged not long after was probably the one that people remember the most as the British response to Elvis, Liverpool-born Billy Fury. I honestly don't really like it when people is labeled like the new enter famous musician name or the Italian enter another singer name. So now hear me out, artists tend to influence each other. That's how art evolves. And I know that calling a band the new whatever is marketing. It's a way to categorize a new artist and create interest in an existing fandom. But I've always hated it with a passion. It belittles both artists in a way, suggesting that the established name wasn't that unique after all and that the new one is just copying somebody else. And interestingly enough, Tommy Steele as well had already been advertised as the new Elvis. A family-friendly version of Elvis though, since his performances didn't really have much in common with the King's ones. Then Cliff Richard, as we said, was the new Elvis, but he then changed his image very quickly. Billy Fury, on the other hand, had less inhibitions on stage and his moves were way more provocative. He became one of the first proper rock and roll idols in Britain, sometimes even collaborating with brilliant guitarist Joe Brown. And something that actually makes him very, very different from Elvis, Billy Fury was one of the first rock and roll stars to write most of his hits. One of his first self-written singles comes from 1960, And he said that he was inspired to write this song when he was working at the docks in Liverpool. And one day during one of his breaks, he went to the cinema and watched a film called Colette. And then he wrote a song, Colette. And honestly, this could have easily been a hit for the Everly Brothers. And finally, in that same 1960, a group released a song that quickly became number one, Shaken All Over by Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. It is considered a cornerstone of British rock, because for the first time this music wasn't emulating American rock and roll. It wasn't another Elvis, in a few words, it was simply something new. The band didn't end up being particularly successful, but it definitely left an impression on many musicians in their formative years. Musicians that would soon show the world that Britain could rock. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. I really hope you liked it. Not many people actually talk about British rock and roll, I guess mostly because when British bands played rock and roll, they, they were mostly playing covers. Like I, I, I'm thinking about the Beatles and the, the, the songs that they played both in Hamburg, at the Cavern and on their first albums. They were mainly songs by Chuck Berry, or written by Goffin and King, or even live at the BBC. There weren't really many British songs, although they used to play "Shaking All Over, so there you go. Thank you very much for listening again, and remember to follow me on Instagram at the Cat's Whisker. I am really, really happy because I just hit a thousand followers which I know for many of you might not be much, but for me is absolutely a big achievement and I'm really, really happy and I really want to thank you all. And you can also follow me on TikTok. You can listen to the podcast on all the podcast apps and also on YouTube, where I also post other videos. Thank you very much for listening and I'll see you next week. Ciao!